awkward and uncomfortable staying with strangers. And I remember it was winter, and we watched a lot of the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid, probably to distract ourselves from missing our parents. And we were really glad to see them when they came back to pick us up. And I don't think we ever saw that other couple again. Well, that's a good analogy for what Paul is getting at in today's passage. He's trying to help us think through the story of the Old Testament and how it all goes together. And he's saying that God relates to his people like a good parent who's dependable and faithful and always there to be in relationship with you. In the Bible, this began with the story of God's people and where that began when when God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants to be part of God's family. God committed himself to Abraham and to Abraham's family by giving them a promise, a promise to remain faithful to them, a promise to give them an inheritance. But then, 430 years later, God gave his people God's law, a set of commands to live by. And giving this law, Paul says, was like my parents leaving me and my sister, uh, my sister and I, uh, with another couple for a weekend. These babysitters were a temporary arrangement. They were a a stopgap measure to keep us safe, to keep us alive, until our parents could get back to us. The babysitters were nice enough, but they were suboptimal. Once we had our own parents back, we didn't need the babysitters anymore. Now, imagine if this couple had said to us, you kids better be really good, because if you aren't good, your parents won't come and get you, and they're going to leave you here with us forever. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Yet, that's how many of us think God treats us. In fact, that's what the Galatians were thinking because of some teachers who'd come into their church and were teaching them this sort of thing. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians to sort out the Galatians' view of God and to teach them to read their Old Testaments correctly. Paul argues that God's law isn't a set of rules that we have to keep well enough or else God won't keep his promises. God won't be faithful to us anymore. No, a promise is a promise. A faithful parent is a faithful parent. They're going to come back for you and keep you as their own no matter what. Before we look at how Paul makes this argument in today's passage, just think for a minute. What's your view of God? Do you know that God is faithful? Or do you think that that you have to be good enough, you have to behave well enough or do a good enough job at, at keeping up your end of your relationship with God in order for God to care about you or pay you any mind. I'll give you a moment just to think about that. What's your view of God? You know, Paul's message in today's passage is basically the same as, as the one he's been hammering home to us for the past few weeks as we've been looking at Galatians. That our relationship with God is based on putting our faith in Jesus Christ and in His grace. It's not based on our efforts or our strength to earn God's pleasure, God's favor. Boy, and you'd think we had a hard time really believing this or something. That that we'd had a habit of, of forgetting God's grace and going back to our own efforts to try to earn God's favor. You know, I think it was Martin Luther who used to say, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. 
And when Luther was talking to some other preachers once about the gospel, he said, it is most necessary that we should know this article well and teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. Which I guess is what I have the privilege of doing again for us this morning. (laughs) So let's look at today's passage. Paul begins by giving us an analogy of his own taken from everyday life. It's the analogy of a will that you make to determine who gets your belongings when you die. Today, state law generally allows you to update your will periodically as your wishes or your circumstances change. But back then in Roman law, there was a kind of will called an irrevocable will. This kind of will couldn't be revoked or changed ever, not by anyone, not even by you. It was set in stone. You couldn't add to it. You couldn't take anything away from it. You couldn't alter it in any way. Now, not surprisingly in Paul's day, people would seldom set up an irrevocable will until they were on their deathbed. Makes sense, right? Because once it's duly established, it can't be altered ever. Well, Paul is saying that God's promises to Abraham are like that irrevocable will. Paul calls this a covenant, which is a a promise which has been officially ratified through the appropriate documentation. God made some covenant promises to Abraham, if you go back in the story to near the beginning in the book of Genesis, that God would always accept Abraham and that they would remain in right relationship with one another. God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, that all the nations would be blessed through him, and that they would inherit the promised land, the place of God's presence and God's provision. All these promises had to do with what we call salvation in the terms in which Abraham would have understood it back then. They have to do with being invited into God's family, written into God's story, and included in God's good purposes to redeem and restore God's creation. And in verse 13, Paul says that as the story of Scripture moves forward and unfolds, these promises are really pointing us toward Jesus Christ. Paul points out that that when God promised these things to Abraham and to Abraham's seed, to his descendant, that seed was singular, not plural. Paul's picking up here on the fact that not all of Abraham's children inherited the promises, but only one each generation. Isaac received the promises, not Ishmael. Then from Isaac, Jacob received them, not his brother Esau. Then from Jacob, Judah received the promise that leadership for God's kingdom and God's purposes would eventually come from his line and not that of his other 11 brothers. And from Judah, eventually came the line of kings who were to lead God's kingdom purposes. First David, then Solomon, then others. Not every son of David or Solomon could be king. Only one son could each generation. And so Abraham's line, Abraham's seed, the one who would inherit the promise, passed from generation to generation until it came to the ultimate and the final seed of Abraham and the son of David, Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who finally inherits all of God's promises to Abraham. That God would always accept him, that They would remain in right relationship with each other. That Christ would be the father of many nations. And that all the nations would be blessed through him. Finally, that they would inherit the promised land. The place of God's 
presence and God's provision. Only Christ gets not only the promised land, Christ gets the whole world, the whole universe. It's expanded until all things are made new and blessed and redeemed and restored. That's the story. That's the biblical story that Paul is helping us to see. And and so what Paul is saying here in verses 15 to 16 is this. That will or that covenant which God made irrevocably with Abraham to, to will the promised inheritance to Christ can't be amended or set aside. Christ inherits all of God's promises to Abraham and we can get in on them only through Christ. It's through Christ that we come into a right relationship with God and can enjoy God's presence in our lives. It's through Christ that we become Abraham's children and are included among God's people. It's through Christ that we receive God's blessing and participate in God's mission to bless the nations. It's through Christ that we can participate in God's restoration of all things and experience that restoration ourselves. The path of God's whole plan of salvation, which began in Abraham, head straight down through the ages until it ends in Christ and is fulfilled in him. And how can we, or how sure can we be as a result that Christ is given the, that, that Christ has been given the inheritance, everything that God promised to Abraham, and that if we put our faith in Christ, we inherit it too. How sure can we be of those things? We can be rock solid sure. Like a will that can't be added to or, or deleted from, God's salvation plan is set in stone. It's irrevocable. It's grounded in God's promises, and it's based on God's faithfulness. It's not dependent on whether God's children along the way act well enough to deserve it, right? If you know the Old Testament story, God's children misbehaved quite often, didn't they? For sure. They, they very often were not faithful to God. But God remained faithful to his promises. God made sure that he sent his people Jesus even though they didn't deserve it. Because a promise is a promise. And so our salvation depends not on how faithful we are to God along the way, but on how faithful God is to us. Verse 17, God says, or sorry, Paul says, God says through Paul, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Right? The promise that God gave to Abraham was like an irrevocable will. Such a, a commitment cannot be changed or amended or deleted or added to. The law can't change the covenant. The law can't affect the promise. If God has already given the promise irrevocably, the law can't come along and add stipulations later and say, well, I know God promised you could have it. But now you just have to do this or that or you can't actually have it. No, a promise is a promise. Paul drives this home in verse 18. If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it freely to Abraham through a promise. And a promise, say it with me, a promise is a promise. Paul adds that God gave this promise to Abraham as a free gift. Abraham hadn't done anything to earn it or to deserve it. 
Abraham hadn't struck a bargain with God or brought anything to the table to contribute to this deal. No, God had just given Abraham the promise out of God's own free, gracious generosity. And so how could God turn around later and say, well, wait a second, I want to amend the agreement. If God did that, God would be like Darth Vader, right? I'm altering the deal. Pray that I don't alter it further. God would be saying, I changed my mind. You can't have salvation for free after all. No, now there are a few things I've decided I want you to do. Actually, over 600 of them. And if you keep all of these now, then I'll keep my promise. No, if God did that, then the inheritance wouldn't be by a promise anymore. Instead, it would have to be earned. It would have to be worked for. And and if you have to earn it, you can never be sure you have it, that, that you've done enough until the end of your life when your work is judged. What kind of God would God be if if God promised Abraham's descendants a free ride and then he turned around and sent them a huge bill in the mail? God would never do that. Do you know why? Because God is faithful. When God makes a promise, a promise is a promise. So, Paul insists, the law does not set aside the covenant, God's irrevocable will, whose beneficiary is Abraham and his seed, Christ. Well, if all that's true, then question. What was the purpose of the law, right? Paul anticipates this question in verse 19. If the law can't change or modify the promise, then why in the world did God give the law? And Paul answers this question in the next sentence in verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. When my parents went away for the weekend, they they put babysitters in charge of us until they came back for us. And likewise, because people are so prone to get into trouble, so prone to hurt one another, God in his wisdom put the law into effect to watch over us until Jesus came to deal with our behavior problem properly. The law, in other words, was a band-aid solution. You see, people are are sinful. We're we're selfishly oriented. Often we don't think about how our actions might hurt other people or hurt God's creation. We're, We're not so much concerned about being part of the solution to redeem and restore all things as we are in looking out for number one. And not only are we habitual sinners, but but sin is like a drug addiction. It it causes us to lose touch with reality. And, And so we become quite smug and sure that we don't, in fact, have a problem. Babysitter? We don't need a babysitter. We can look after ourselves, right? <laughs> but God knows better. And so God gave us a babysitter, whether we thought we needed one or not. And the law babysits us in three different ways. First, the law is a mirror. It it gives us a standard to view our lives up against. It's as if God was saying, you you don't think you've got a problem? We'll, We'll measure your life up against this standard and let's see. Look in the mirror. See, you're actually quite a mess. Your life needs to get cleaned up. So the law is like a mirror. Second, the law is also like a teacher. Through it, God says, here are my instructions about how you should live. This is the way life works best. This is the way to a better world for all. This is what it means to be good. And then third, the law is not only like a mirror and like a teacher, it's also like a fence. It, It restrains bad behavior by forbidding it. 
It says, don't do that. <laughs> if, you're, if our country had no laws about murder and, and theft, for example, there'd be a lot more of it, I can guarantee you. <laughs> now, some people still break the law, even though the law is there, and the law demands their punishment. But for the rest of us, that no shoplifting sign is enough to keep us from taking that candy bar that, that we really want but don't have the money for. Imagine if there were no laws against shoplifting. So, so the law watches over our behavior. It's, it's a babysitter. But the law has a serious limitation. And Paul mentions this in verse 21. We'll see it in a minute. First, Paul anticipates a second question we might have. And that is, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Is God contradicting himself? G- giving us the promises for free by grace and then turning around and asking us to earn them. Paul says, no way. For if a law had been given which, or that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the fact is, and here's the law's limitation, the law can't impart life. It, it's powerless. It's dead. The law may be a mirror showing us what we look like. It, it can show us our pimply face or our stubbly chin, but the law has no power to clear our complexion or to give us a shave. And the law may be like a teacher telling us how to live, but it has no power to help us live that way. And the law may be a fence forbidding us to do wrong things and then punishing us if we do them, but the law has no power to make us want to do what's right. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, the law can keep a man from lynching me, but it can't, keep a, it can't make a man love me. In other words, the law can only curb bad behavior. It can't create good behavior, let alone good motives and good hearts. It it may keep you from stealing what isn't yours, but it will never make you want to share what is yours. The law may keep you from cheating on your spouse, but it can never keep your eyes or your heart from wandering or make you love your spouse. The law may put a fence around... uh, You, for example, if you put a fence around your house, it may keep your kids from running out into the street, but that fence won't do anything to make them more careful or more obedient. And so as soon as you take the fence down, they'll be right back in the street, right? If that's what they wanted to do in the first place. If that fence is the only thing stopping them. And so Gordon Fee, a former professor of mine, used to say about the law, you can never really tell whether someone's a believer until the fence is torn down. Then you see how they behave. Because not only does the law have absolutely no power to to help us live out what it commands, but the law shoots way too low. Because God is concerned about the heart. God doesn't want us just not to steal from the rich. God also wants us to share generously with the poor. God doesn't just want us to not yell at our spouses or our parents or whoever. God wants us to cherish them deeply and to love them sacrificially even when they sometimes hurt us. God doesn't just want us to read our Bibles and to pray every day. God wants us to want him and to love him and to delight to spend time with him. So we need changed hearts. And the law can't do that. Because as Paul says in verse 22, Scripture has locked everything under the control of sin. In other words, the Scripture tells us the problem isn't with the law, it's with our sinfulness. 
We're sinful, we're selfish, we're rebellious toward God. We want to make the rules. And we care more about ourselves than anything else. And and because we're like this, the law could not bring us into a right relationship with God. The law couldn't impart life. It could only lead to guilt and shame and failure and death. And so the law couldn't bring the promise to Abraham to fulfillment. It could only serve as a band-aid until the promised seed, Jesus Christ, came. The best the law could do was to babysit us temporarily until our true parent came back for us. And so Paul points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed, he says, the fulfillment of all those promises to Abraham. God was faithful to to send Jesus to us, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were so often unfaithful to God. Why was God faithful? Because God promised to be faithful. And say it with me again, a promise is a promise. So Paul concludes in verse 22, that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Through Christ, God kept his promise. Through Christ, God was faithful to fulfill his promise to Abraham. In Christ, the the irrevocable will is executed and all the inheritance is poured out. And Paul says, if we put our faith in Christ, if we follow him, if we stick with him, we get in on the promise. We get a share in the inheritance too. We get invited into God's family, written into God's story, included in God's purposes to redeem and to restore God's creation. Not because we deserve this, not because we had to earn it, not because we kept God's law well enough, but simply because a promise is a promise. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting in the promise and trusting in the one who inherited the promise and invites us into it. Let me just end with an illustration from the world of animals. I don't know if any of you have been to the zoo or you've seen a nature program about baby monkeys, if you've seen baby monkeys. Do you know how a baby monkey stays with their mother as the mother swings through the trees? They hang on for dear life. (laughs) The mothers are leaping from branch to branch. They're swinging with their long arms. They're flying along through the, the canopy And the babies hang on with everything they've got to the back of their mother. Because if they loosen their grip for one second, it's a long way down to the ground. Well, a lot of us think that that's what faith is like. And and that that's how we need to relate to God. It's baby monkey faith. But that's not the kind of faith Paul is talking about here. The kind of faith Paul is talking about here is more like baby kitten faith. How do baby kittens travel with their mothers? They get picked up by the scruff of their neck, which doesn't hurt, evidently, and the mothers take them along. (laughs) And the kittens don't seem to mind it. The kittens don't need to cling. They don't get stressed out. They just sort of hang there and go along for the ride. (laughs) You know why? Because their mother has got them. Their mother has got them. They don't need to grab onto mom because mom's got a hold of them. That's the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. It's knowing that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy, that even when 
when we don't feel like we're doing a good enough job of holding on to God, that we trust that God has got a hold of us. And so we can relax and enjoy the trip because through Jesus Christ, God has got us. Because a promise is a promise. And if our faith is in Jesus Christ, then that promise is a promise to us. Let's worship.